Virginia Woolf to Vita Sackville West, January 1927. Look here, Vita. Throw over your man, and we'll go to Hampton Court, and dine on the river together, and walk in the garden in the moonlight, and come home late and have a bottle of wine and get tipsy. And I'll tell you all the things I have in my head, millions, myriads. They won't stir by day, only by dark on the river. Think of that. Throw over your man, I say, and come. Mm. Amazing. Three years into their passionate affair, Virginia Woolf wrote this letter to one of the loves of her life, Vita Sackville West, a dashing socialite and a brilliant author in her own right. The affair wouldn't last past the end of the Roaring Twenties, but it was one of the great loves of Virginia's life. And yet, despite her intense love for this woman, Virginia is rarely remembered as a queer figure. But that stops today. So come on in, babies, because the water's human temperature. <laughs> Welcome to today's episode of Historical Homos. I'm Donald Brophy. And I'm Bash. Welcome back. Today, we will be talking about a much-beloved historical and literary figure and somebody that I happen to admire a great, great deal. The one and only Miss Virginia Woolf. And yes, today's episode is about women loving women. And you know why? Because they're just so fucking good at it, Bash. They are. And I just want to be clear that this is a lesbian podcast. We are pro-lesbian. We love lesbian. I hate the whole gay versus lesbian thing. I think it's so fucking stupid. I didn't even know it existed. No, you know how it's like unaware you know how it's like, like in the will and grace era of homosexuality, it's like gay men versus lesbian women. It's like shut up. Yeah. Lesbians are awesome. Love them. Absolutely. And speaking of fucking awesome lesbians, Miss Virginia Woolf. Okay. Gay at the turn of the 20th century in Blighty, in old England. I've never even heard that before. You never heard Blighty described? Blighty. Uh, you know, it's like a slang term for England. Old Blighty. Mm. Yeah. You are useful after just, all. Yeah. Je suis, je, je suis Donald <laughs> Sorry, go on. It's important to, that we give a little bit of context, I think, around what it was like to be gay at this time. It is post-Victorian England, which is disgusting, yucky, we hate. They're so prude. They don't talk about sex. They don't even really talk about love that much you know they just don't have the sort of juices flowing and post Oscar Wilde they are definitely on high alert for the homos right especially for the men so Oscar Wilde famously has this big trial where he gets convicted and it doesn't end well for him but at the same time everyone in England knows that everyone in England is a little bit gay that's one of their national pastimes and so they're not surprised that these intense relationships exist between men or between women. But for the Victorians, they're a little bit like, oh, it's just a phase, you know, kind of like they still are for a lot of women, mm -hmm. you know, when when they're sort of like, oh, she's just bisexual for a while or or it's a... One uh, stop on the highway to 
one stop on the highway to gay. Yeah, especially amongst like kind of the upper classes, right? The upper echelons. I mean, yeah, the, and the upper classes, as always, can do whatever they want uh, with relative impunity. But everybody would always kind of button it up after a certain amount of time and marry a woman. Yes, and, especially yeah. in this period, and that's important because of what Virginia Woolf and her whole set will represent. So they do talk about lesbianism as a thing. Virginia often refers to it as Sapphism, which is from... Sapphism. Do we know where that came from? Yeah, from Sappho, who is the OG lesbian, the poetess of ancient Greece. I named my dog after her. Oh, I thought you named her after Safi from Ab Fab. I also did that. I also did that. Oh, you little bitch troll from hell. So... In 1921, importantly, and also there are like some fabulous lesbians running around the place, you know, in Paris in particular, there are all these circles like Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas and Natalie Clifford Barney. There's like these rich American. So it's the Belle Epoque in Paris, right? Belle Epoque, Paris. So they're a little bit more kind of chill and down with the, down with the good times. Well, yeah, in Paris, everyone's been fucking everyone for hundreds of years. They don't care. In England, they're starting to change, but it's still very Victorian, very prudish. So, and actually, within Virginia's lifetime in 1921, the British government would try to legislate against gross indecency between women, but then they thought the better of it because they were like, I think if we make this law, then we're gonna encourage lesbianism more than we would smart <laughs> suppress it, right? It's like, don't name the thing because then people will do the thing. But this is also a big period for women. It's, you know, Coco Chanel, the Roaring Twenties. There's a lot of gender bending. Everything post the world, First World War kind of changes. And there are also a lot of lesbian precedents in English history, in English literature. So Queen Anne is one of the most famous and her affair, that's what the movie The Favorite is right. based on, her affair with the Duchess of Marlborough and then another girl. And then there's Afra Bain, who was uh, one of the first female professional playwrights in 17th century England, definitely probably bisexual. And Virginia and Vita definitely thought she was. Vita actually wrote a biography about her. There was Anne Lister from that HBO show, Gentleman Jack. Oh Have my you God. seen that? Yeah, absolutely. So good. Total top. Yeah. Total top. Absolutely would let her do anything to me. And then there are these Boston marriages that are, you know, wealthy women living together in older age. Um, there are actually some really famous ones in Wales called the Ladies of Langolin. Um, and they they become really famous for just being women who live together and have a beautiful domestic life for like 50 years. Mm-hmm. So women are good at shacking up together already, as we know. Yeah. And it's mostly privileged women. But anyway, the point is Victorian England is terrible for sex, for love. And Virginia Woolf is going to sort of burst onto this scene and with a bunch of her friends kind of change the game. Act one, Virginia, bisexual genius. Virginia Woolf. It's a sad life. It's especially in the beginning, but it's also kind of a nice life. And I'm not, we're not going to do like a whole biography. You can go watch the hours or whatever the fuck you want to learn about Virginia Woolf. Just ask AI to print out a... uh... Yeah, chat GPT it. Chat GPT it. That's what we did with the script. (laughs) Just kidding, there's no script. Just kidding. So uh, They're never taking our jobs. We're too weird uh, for that. Don't know. it in. <laughs> so Virginia Woolf is born January 25th, 1882, which makes her an Aquarius. And I looked this up on my CoStar app because that is the most lesbian thing you can do is astrologically place a woman. Oh, you were talking about me, CoStar, like the eyes of Aquarius. And I was about oh, to tell you. I'm no, so like, no. Oh, okay. I rarely think of you. <laughs> no. So that makes her an Aquarius. Okay, which means, and I quote, she was fundamentally unconventional, comfortable dissenting, 
and had an intellectual talent for abstraction oriented towards pushing boundaries. I think that's a pretty fucking good description of Virginia Woolf, actually. Yeah, she did push a lot of Spot boundaries. On. Anyway, she has kind of a nice life. Like, she's basically from the upper middle class. Her father is an intellectual and writer critic. Her mother is a very famous beauty, and there's actually photographs of her f- done by Julia Margaret Cameron, if mm. you know that photographer who took these gorgeous pre-Raphaelite yeah. photos. Look it up. And, and they were, like, her mother, which I thought was very interesting, both her mother and father were, like, born in India. Right? Yeah. Well, that was a lot of British people of this class at at the time. Yeah. Because they were all sort of colonial cronies over there. Which is so kind of exotic when you think about it, especially in the 1860s, 70s, or whatever, you know? Yeah. I imagine. I mean, they were also like crushing the nation and ruining it economically. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting fact. Let bygones be bygones. (laughs) Vivian Lee was born around the same time in India, actually. Um, Your dog? One of my personal (laughs) obsessions. My dog is called Vivian Lee. Anyway, it's not wander too far off the well-trodden Virginia Woolf path. No, the point is, and we will be getting drunk on this episode, so I apologize if it's difficult for anyone. But she has lots of friends. (laughs) A few inches later... You want to you want to humanize yourself for the listeners. <sighs> Stars are just like you guys. <laughs> so they grow up with a ton of famous friends like Henry James, George Eliot, all of these big names in literature. So and and Vanessa is the third child of four, so she's kind of in the middle. And they have she has a very complicated relationship with her older sister Vanessa, but very close. She really admires her. Toby is kind of like the older brother that she wants to be like when he goes up to Cambridge. He she's you know really annoyed that she can't go to school and all of that. And uh, but anyway, more importantly, there are some very early tragedies in her life, which color the rest of her sort of personal history of mental illness. Her mother dies when she's 13, which is fucking early. But I think relatively common in that period, too. And then her half-sister, Stella, dies a couple years later, and she's very close with her. She's also apparently sexually abused by her half-brothers, who were related to Stella, George and Gerald. The Duckworths. The Duckworths, exactly. And it's kind of unclear exactly what happened, but Virginia spoke about it later in her life. Her father then dies in 1904 when she's 22 or something like that. So, Mm. I mean, she just has a rough go of it. But her father dying is actually kind of a big moment. You know what? Apparently, and from from what I can gather, she... um only In later life, she appreciated her mother. But, like, during her early formative years, she was very much felt indebted. And she kind of, like, sanctified and really put her father up on a very... Uh, yeah, and then right. it sort of like switches. It switches a she bit. becomes a little salty about her dad in later years, and mm. she really venerates her mother, as I'm sure you would if they yeah. died that young. And, and also, what I, th- I found a little bit interesting about the father as well, if I may, just before we get, get carry on, which is in terms oh, of oh, please go ahead. <laughs> in terms of her education, <clears throat> which I think was very interesting, is that like women of the time weren't allowed go to. Um, you know, uh, school, essentially. But they had a massive library, right? Yeah, her dad. big, big library. And her dad really encouraged Yeah, her. and yeah. didn't edit anything. So in, in a strange way, Virginia was reading, like, what the boys wouldn't have been allowed to read at, like, 
you know, Cambridge and stuff like that. She read everything greedily, she described. Yeah, and she she later complained about her not having any education, but her father actually did send her to King's College London. She got a bunch of her girlfriends together. They studied Latin, ancient Greek. Right. They studied history. Introduced to the suffragettes and everything at that time. Yes, right? yeah. So it's not like she, and she was like in the midst of this big bourgeois family. You know, she had an education, but she was a major autodidact. She, she taught herself a lot of history. She read literature voraciously and developed extremely, what's the word, extremely original opinions on everything because mm. it was just her, I think. Yeah. Know? She wasn't being led by which teachers. Which I think is so important, yeah. So, daddy dies in 1904. She's actually not that sad about it, it seems, at the, at the time because he's kind of been a dick in the past couple of years and he also was really sick for two years. So it was just sort of like unfair to him to, you know, keep having cancer. So the kids finally move out and they finally get away from the Duckworths. They move to Bloomsbury, which becomes very important mm-hmm. for them. They set up their own house basically. So it's like chic as fuck. Yeah. They go traveling in Europe, you know, it's not a bad life. And when they get back though, Virginia has one of the fir- one of her first nervous breakdowns. And it's interesting, people think that she's sort of just like depressed, but she had some serious mental illness like these episodes that she had in the beginning of her life she was raving mad like got institutionalized it wasn't just like she was kind of depressed some of the time you know so there were some moments in her life where she went through these periods and it was like really dark Hmm. at the same time her brother dies in 1906 toby so she's 24 when that happens and then vanessa gets married to clive bell who becomes a, a great friend of theirs so it's just like one loss right, after, after the other because right. vanessa moves out to establish her own house with with clive it's so confusing because there's so many like brothers and sisters and half brothers and people dying yeah it's a big ass so, family so it must have been very confusing for her she does get this like one after the other kind of domino effect of tragedies and then at the same time, she has these really passionate friendships, passionate friendships, we call them, with women, even though she was definitely in love with some of them. So one of them is Violet Dickinson, who's this older woman that becomes uh, kind of a maternal figure to her in, her in her early life. And then the next one is Madge Vaughn, who she definitely told Vita that she was in love with when she was a child. Madge Vaughn. Madge Vaughn, or, who is the daughter of another historical homo, John Addington Simmons, because all British people are what? A little gay. bit gay. A little gay, bash, yeah. So she does have this, you know, little passionate affair, but it's it never materializes into something serious and, and realized. Madge, interestingly, becomes Sally in uh, Mrs. Dalloway, which if anyone has read, that's oh. Clarissa Dalloway has a sort of dalliance, nice, yeah. with Sally in like a, in a memory that they have. They share a kiss or something, which is like, oh my God, so sexy. Uh, but anyway, they're all just flirtations, Virginia is not a very sexual person, possibly because of the abuse that she suffered. That's what some scholars think. And importantly, she does not describe herself as a sapphist. She doesn't think that she's a lesbian. So is she bisexual, do you think? I mean, yeah, like she's definitely something because she basically prefers women in every way to men, including sexually and erotically and romantically. Yeah, it also seems to me like a lot of the like full-on you know, Kinsey scale, I suppose, gay people at the time were, you know, literally just going with convention and eventually, like we were talking about earlier on, like eventually they decide that they have to kind of just settle down. Or like Oscar Wilde, who was definitely flaming homosexual, like married and had kids. Yeah, and I think that was that was kind of like what just what you did at the time. You know, it's like, 
But the Bloomsbury Group thought differently about that, for sure. So round about this time, Virginia is also starting to become a professional writress. She is writing for journalistic outlets, like kind of small fry, targeted towards women. And then eventually she starts to get reviews and articles in the Times Literary Supplement in you know, respectable publications. She starts to make some actual money from it, which they need because they don't have you know oodles of money. Right. She also starts writing her first novel around this time, The, the Voyage Out in 1907, out, yeah. which... Which is important to mention that it's kind of like all around the time of the modernist movement, right? So everything yeah. that's happening... That's actually all we're going to mention about it because I've never read it and I know absolutely nothing about it. Yeah. <laughs> I know a little bit about it, actually. I think it's kind of interesting. It, it, it is very experimental. Yeah. She like hits the scene hard and, and, and it's largely due to the influence of this Bloomsbury group, which consists of primarily these boys from Cambridge that her older brother Toby had made friends with, and the Stephen, her, her real name's Virginia Stephen, forgot to mention right. that, this, the Stephen sisters, and then their sort of uh, female contacts in London who are all interested in art. And there's no real unifying philosophy in the Bloomsbury group, but the big thing about them is that they do not take any of the Victorian shit about sex. So they think that gender doesn't matter, like whoever you love is who you love. Mm. And they're also not bothered by polyamory or being in multiple relation, open relationships. And Vita Sackville West, who she'll later have this relationship with, has one of the most famous open marriages with her own husband. And they're like prominent people. In, and E.M. Forster was in the Bloomsbury. E.M. Forster is also there. Lytton Strachey, who's a big homo. Virginia refers to him as her female friend. Yes, queen! Which is icy. There's Roger Fry, there's Duncan Grant. They're all of these, not very well known today, but they're artists who were pretty big, artists and critics who were pretty big at the time. And they launch, you know, a, a exhibition about the Impressionists, and that really influences Virginia, because what she wants to do is sort of do what the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists have done in art, but in literature, which is capture the essence of something through you know, the, the little accidental experiences of it and not sort of, and not do it in a realistic way. She doesn't want, she doesn't like realist art. She right, wants like the Joycean kind of model as well was around that time as well. The stories are about something, but what's underlying the, the rivers and the seas underneath the actual words are what's important. Yeah, and it can be hard to read actually uh, a lot of the time. Like when you read The Waves by Virginia Woolf, you're like, the fuck is going on here? Yeah, or, at least never, or Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake as well. I can't read that shit thing. at all. Yeah, it's, it's um that Irish shed. Sorry, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bloomsbury Group is obsessed with art. They are also all pacifists, which becomes important because World War One's about to hit, and they fucking love homosexuality. So now I would like to do a dramatic reading. The Society of Buggers from Memoirs of Being, nineteen twenty-eight. Another scene has always lived in my memory. I do not know if I invented it or not. As the best illustration of Bloomsbury, it was a spring evening. Vanessa and I were sitting in the drawing room. At any moment, her husband, Clive, might come in and he and I should begin arguing. Vanessa sat silent and did something mysterious with her needle or her scissors. I talked, egotistically, excitedly, about my own affairs, no doubt. Suddenly, the door opened and the long, sinister figure of Mr. Leighton Strachey stood on the threshold. He pointed his finger at a stain on Vanessa's white dress. Seaman, he said. Can one really say it? I thought, and we burst out laughing. Without one word, all barriers of retinence and reserve went down. 
A flood of the sacred fluid seemed to overwhelm us. Sex permeated our conversation. The word booger was never far from our lips. So this is a perfect encapsulation to Virginia Woolf 20 years later of the kind of shit that they would talk about, you know? And for that, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but for a bunch of British well-to-do people coming together every Thursday and Friday night and being like, ooh, yes, Harold is stooping Toby and all of that, you know, was like a big deal. It really, it, it, it was out in the open. And the same thing suddenly extended to women as well because the women in, these, in this group also started having lesbian relationships right. with each other. And they started getting married and then still having those lesbian relationships. So it's a big tangled knot, you know? Yeah. And Leonard Wolf also enters the scene at this point or re-enters the scene, and he will be the one to eventually marry Virginia Woolf in 1912 or something like that. And even though that's, you know, her kind of main relationship in her life, and she they do love each other, and they do apparently try to have sex and have a child, but eventually just abandon it. They never had any children. They never had any children, even though, and Virginia doesn't seem to have liked children that much. She liked children, but she didn't want to have her own from, from the letters that I read. Uh, and, and so Virginia and Leonard settle down into this domestic partnership, but it's just a partnership. It's not really a, a sexual relationship as we would understand it. But I don't know. It's kind of like, who cares, you know? Who cares? Yeah. And, and it becomes a financial partnership, too, because they start to, they buy a printing press and they... And by the way, it sounds like they were a great partnership. Yeah, no. I mean, the way she speaks about him, you know, especially towards the end of her life and how he treated her. I mean, what a, in a way, in a large way, he was her emotional, like, support for her entire, for her entire adult life. Totally. And, and that's like in the beginning of their relationship, he was the only reason that she was able to survive these bouts of mental illness. Yeah. And, but let's and, face it, if she was afforded the same kind of like rights and privileges as a, as a modern woman, she probably just would have lived outrightly as a full on lesbian probably would have been in the same sex. No, I don't, I don't think think so. I think she had a really different sexual identity. She, she just doesn't seem to have been interested in sex with men, but I don't think that made her purely lesbian because she did love men. She was in relationships with men, you know? Um, and, but she did have a lot of sexual relationships with women. They're the only ones that she really had sexual A couple. Okay. I, don't th- I don't think she had that much sex to begin with. I think Virginia was a little, right. a little dowdy, a little cobwebby down oh, there. Oh, really bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> but they buy this printing press and things start to get a little more, you know. Tell me the name of the printing press because I love it. Hogarth, Hogarth. Hogarth Press because they have it in their house called Hogarth House in Richmond, just outside of London. And they literally have it in the basement. They do the type, they set the type. Which is still around today, Hogarth Press, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And they they set the type and they do all of the binding and it actually apparently helps Virginia Woolf get through some of the mental illness because it keeps her busy. And at the same time, she's writing, 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 writes another novel, you know, so it's, Her life sort of takes off from there in the 1920s, and she starts to become a really respected literary figure, even though her books don't really sell that much because they're not, you know. And she's self-publishing everything with Hogarth Press. Yeah, except for like one or two of them, which Duckworth Press um, publishes her her sexually abusive 
half-brother. I wonder if she ever confronted the Duckworths about the sexual abuse. No, I don't think she did, but she wrote about it in this in these memoirs, mm. you know? I don't think she was trying to, like, go after them and, and because it all happened when they were kids, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's not the sort of the same thing as, like, an adult abusing a, a child. But they were older children, and, and she was younger, and it, it was that kind of thing. So that's Virginia's life. In the beginning, at least, we'll get back to her. But now we need to do Vita Sackville West, who is considerably sexier. Act two, Vita, other bisexual genius. Oh, I'll see where this is going. A little bit more of a devil may care kind of aristocratic. Yeah, I mean, she's rich. She's rich. Fair enough. It really helps to be rich. And of course, in keeping with good lesbian practice, we will be reading her astrological chart. What sign was she? She was born March 9th, 1892. So she's 10 years younger than Virginia, which according to CoStar means she was... uh, I think she was a Pisces, first of all. Like myself. Like yourself. Me and Vita have a lot in common. So this is what you are too. She was fundamentally dreamy, insightful, in her own world, with a rich imagination, endowing her with a strong intuition to hidden emotional currents. That's literally who I am. <laughs> it's almost like these I mean, I'm descriptions. looking into your mouth as those words were coming out. Oh. And I could okay. just Trying see... to fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> Seaman? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm Vita, Sackville West reincarnated. You're, you're Vita, I'm Virginia. <laughs> uh, no, Vita is born an aristocrat. Her father is the third Baron Sackville or something gay like that. And she's also the granddaughter of a Spanish ballerina. Chic. Very chic. Whose name is Pepita. Love that. And I love how they introduced a little bit of like Mediterranean manure to the blood. <laughs> I'm sure that they were all getting a bit horsey looking there at Mediterranean at, manure. Yeah, darling. <laughs> they needed some good genes. They were all starting to look like oh, each other's hi. fathers. Okay, we're doing this with dogs now because Virginia and Vita love dogs. We're, we we are kind of like English aristocracy yes. today. This is Vivian Lee and this is Montgomery Clift, by the way, everybody. Welcome. You'll be seeing a lot more of them. We can't keep them away. They just refuse to be out of the frame. So, back to me. Vita's mother is the daughter of this Spanish ballerina, Pepita. And she's raised in France. Like, they're all very chic, 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 totally. you know. And, and the house is four acres under roof in Kent, if I Vita, Vita is born at this famous country house called Knoll, K-N-O-L-E. They call it a country house in England. It's like, it's a fucking castle. It's four acres, just the building itself. And then it's on a thousand acres of Kentish countryside. And the big problem, though, is that she grows up in this fabulous castle, but she's the only child of the Baron. And she's a girl, so she definitely cannot inherit. That's It's like Downton Abbey, yeah. you know, like when she has to marry the guy because she can't inherit Downton. Cousin, what's his name? Yeah, whatever. The fuck. He dies. Yeah. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, but Vita is very passionate as a child. She's a tomboy. She writes a shit ton. She writes like five novels by the time she's 18 or something like that. It's so annoying. Precocious bitch. But she has a... Overachiever. Yeah, she has a fantastic childhood from what I can tell. She's a little bit of an outsider though. And she also learns kind of early on, I guess, that she has these lesbian proclivities because she, unlike Virginia, is definitely gay. I mean, bisexual in in the sense that she had sex with men as well, but she clearly has more lesbian leanings and, and wrote to that effect later in her life. 
uh, she she has a little affair with this girl Rosamond when she's young. Actually, I have to read what she wrote about her because it's so funny. My li- my liaison with Rosamond was, in a sense, superficial. I mean that it was almost exclusively physical. Hot. As, to be frank, she always bored me as a companion. I was very fond of her, however. She had a sweet nature, but she was quite stupid. Which is just, like, totally what you want to hear from your lover. Anyway, (laughs) she marries Harold Nicholson in 1913. I don't think he's an aristocrat, but he becomes an extremely important diplomat. So he's, like, at the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. He takes Vita all over the world to Iran and Turkey and all these places. They love traveling together. And he later becomes a a journalist and a writer and all that as well. He's also really involved in World War II. He's like a big deal. So she marries this guy. They absolutely love each They absolutely adore each other. But they figure out that they're both bisexual. Oh. And after Vita pumps out two kids, she's sort of like let's just have an open thing. And they start an open relationship that becomes really uh, the talk of the town, shall we say. So, And that's the thing about Vita Sackville-West is like she's not really remembered as much as Virginia Woolf because Virginia Woolf is, you know, the, the, the feminist hero who wrote all these beautiful books, tragically killed herself. Vita Sackville-West was way more famous than Virginia Woolf really? in, in their time. She was more successful as an author and everybody was talking about her because they used to talk about aristocrats, you know, the right. same way we talk about Kim Kardashian today. Like those right, were you their... talk about Kim Kardashian. I never mentioned her. Oh, please, that my I would lips. never, I would never. Vita Sackville West. What a beautiful ring there is to that name as Vita well. Vita Sackville West. It's actually Victoria, but she, they, they call her Vita. Um, so she was, by all accounts, just this amazing kind of like devil may care, cut this crazy silhouette across London, the bright young things, like just the quintessential. The pretty young things. Yeah. yeah. She also, she has a real gift. It girl of London. She was an it girl. Yes, yeah. she was an it girl. But she, she had a real gift for satire and she mocked her own generation as well a lot later on in a book called The Edwardians, which was one of her big best-selling books. And she actually enters into a very public affair with a woman named Violet Trefusis. Trefusis, I don't know how you pronounce her name. But one scholar describes it as a mutual psychosexual obsession. Who is this fucking scholar? Was it you? Did you describe it? <laughs> Yeah. And that scholar is me. No. <laughs> it's, but it's very like notes on a scandal vibes. You know oh, that movie right. with Kate Blanchett? with each other. And yeah. They are absolutely obsessed with each other. They both are married to men, but they lead this completely open relationship with each other, at least for all of, you know, upper class society to see. Eventually, they run off together to Monte Carlo. It's like 1918. Harold Nicholson, Vita's husband, is busy doing the Treaty of Versailles or whatever, like fixing World War I. And she's off gallivanting with this harpy in the south of France, having a blast. She apparently dresses up as a, right. as a guy named Julian. married to her. Right, and some like mock thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But she, she, she disguises herself as a wounded soldier from World War I named Julian and just carries on in this relationship. So it's absolutely bonkers. She has an amazing time from what we can tell. It's like a couple of years that they're going back and forth to France. But eventually in 1920, Harold and Violet's husband fly over to France and they're like, knock it off. Get your asses home now. And they kind of have to, you know, give in to that. 
And I think they also gave in because they were sort of uh, both not doing well from the mutual psychosexual obsession. Right. You know, starting to sort of wear them thin. Yeah. And Vita, I mean, it was starting to get preposterous too. Like Vita gets mad at Violet for fucking her husband or something. Near my husband. And Vita's like, I'll never speak to her again. And it all sort of calms down because of that. And then, you know, they're, they, they see each other later in life. But that is Vita Sackville West's sort of big lesbian entree onto right. the scene. And there's horsey old Virginia hiding in a corner <laughs> in her tweeds and her, you know, bad complexion. And then there's, although I think Virginia Woolf was kind of beautiful. When she was young, yeah. She yeah, was you can beautiful. See, you see certain portraits of her and then she was dead, certainly. Someone always says, I can't remember who it was, but that she was not pretty but beautiful. Do you know what I mean? Mm, right. So she has like a very, very fine features like her mom. And it's around about this time at the end of 1922 that Vita meets Virginia for the first time at a party thrown by Virginia's brother-in-law, Clive Bell. So now I shall read from that meeting. I simply adore Virginia Woolf, and so would you. You would fall quite flat before her charm and personality. It was a good party. Mrs. Woolf is so simple. She does give the impression of something big, utterly unaffected. There's no outward adornment. She dresses quite atrociously. At first you think she's plain, then a sort of spiritual beauty imposes itself on you, and you find a fascination in watching her. She is both detached and human, silent till she wants to say something and then says it supremely well. She is quite old. I've rarely taken such a fancy to anyone, and I think she likes me. Darling, I have quite lost my heart. She's quite old? She says about Vir Virginia that she's quite old because she's 10 years older than her. Oh. And she's, I, I guess Vita is just 30 now. Oh, so Virginia is 10 years older than, than Vita. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Vita has this beautiful meeting with her and they're like pretty smitten, but it's it doesn't turn into something passionate, passionate for a couple of years. But I think it's a beautiful letter because it already starts to show that they have this kind of spiritual connection that isn't just physical, right. you know? I yeah. Mean, lesbians but they really connect in that moment they write to each other every other week in 1923 and i've read all of their letters it's an incredible read if you just go through and read their relationship from like 1923 to 1941 when virginia died. and do they elope together a lot like to hampton court like the letter you were reading earlier on i mean like not they do they visit each other she was speaking in metaphors virginia when she wrote that letter um, well, I think about the moonlight in Hampton Court. No, no, that letter was like a real invitation because she wanted Vita to come hang out with her at Hampton Court. And I don't think she actually did. So I don't think the letter worked. Okay. Even though that's a horny letter. That horny letter Absolutely. would fucking work on yeah. me. I'll tell Holy you that. Shit. So Throw away your husband. Throw over your man. Throw over your man. So very importantly, Vita, because she has this high profile, is able to help Virginia and Leonard make some money. So she starts publishing her books at the Hogarth Press because she respects Virginia so much. And it's interesting. They have a kind of uneven relationship in some ways. Mm. Vita is her social superior in the rigid class system in England at the time. But Virginia is her is Vita's intellectual superior. Mm. So, and I'll read a little. I'll read a little thing later from Virginia. But yeah, what so what also I find so interesting about the relationship is that like, you know, Virginia her whole life you read that you know because of these kind of hysterical episodes and her mental health you know issues that she had, she was always told that she had to 
she was sickly. She was told that the the writing wasn't good for her, right? She was told that all her intellectual pursuits weren't necessarily what she should be doing, that she should be doing physical pursuits. Like there's these funny instances of her being like like gardening ferociously because she thought that that would kind of assuage some of her like mental breakdowns or whatever. But what I find interesting about Vida... And I think this has happened to, you know, like this can happen a lot to uh, a gay, right, in their life or somebody that hasn't necessarily been around a lot of uh, like-minded people or, or, or homosexuals and they come of age and then all of a sudden they're entered into whatever society it is that they've entered into and they meet somebody, if they're lucky, that will tell them that they're okay. It's okay being. Yeah. It's okay being who they are. What they told you was a lie. In actual fact, what you think makes you weak is really your strength. And I think that's what Vida did for Virginia. I don't really think that there would be uh, quite a a self-realized and actualized uh, writer that has such a worldly, dark, poetic vision if it hadn't been for Vida. I mean, Vida's the inspiration for Orlando, which is your favorite book. It is absolutely my favorite book. I think she looks at Vida and she knows that she can't be like her. She, she, she I'll read the thing in a bit, but she, she knows that Vida is a different sort of woman than her. And that extends to her sexuality and the way that she has all of these affairs and gives herself so freely to people. But I think you're right that having this relationship with Vida completely changes her life and, and changes her ability to see herself as a loving woman in a loving relationship. Because she does love men. She does love her husband, but not in the same... It's in a filial, familial way. It's not in the same way as she passionately loves Vita and gets jealous over Vita. I mean, you read the letters, and it, it is... It's spicy. It's delicious. But also, she just looks down on her a little bit, too, right? Because she knows that she's not necessarily as good of a writer. Like, her se- her little secret with Vita is that she's... But that's of- what I mean. Is like, when I say it's... It, like, it's uneven, but they have... But it works. It fits because they each have things that the other one doesn't have. Like Virginia is extremely intelligent and intellectual and sophisticated in her mind, but she's not good at socializing in the same way that Vita is. You know, she doesn't sort of embrace the world. And I think that's what that's what pulls them together. And that's what attracts Virginia to Vita so much. She's not she doesn't look down on her, I I would say. She knows for a fact and Vita knows for a fact that she's a better writer than Vita. Yeah. But Vita's she just kind is. Of, Vita knows that and she's okay with it. She wants to bring that out in Virginia. Yeah. yeah. It does, it, Which it, is it, nice because she's not intimidated by it. She's not jealous of her talent. She, she No, she really to... builds her up. And that's what I was, yeah. was going to say is the other part of what you were saying is because the writing is so intense for Virginia, like Leonard often says that the writing is partly responsible for her mental breakdowns in, in her early years. Because of that, Vita is able to sort of guide her through that and encourage her to write and and tell her, you know, you are valuable, you, what you're doing is worthwhile. Because that's Virginia's big thing. That's all artists' big thing is like, yeah. is what I'm saying or doing worth anything in this stupid little world? Yeah. And eventually, Virginia believes that it isn't. And yeah. that's why I'm she not kills herself. I'm find a point of it, ladies and gentlemen. But I do think that, that you know, that cosmic explosion of uh, Vita Sackville-West and, and, and Virginia Woolf meeting each other was one of the reasons why we have the, the, the depth of, of kind of work that we have from her today. At Free, Vita and Virginia, a love story. So yes, they have this little mi- mismatch, you know, in their, in their kind of unevenness. And the, the other part of that is that they both know how to play each other well. And we'll see that in their letters in a second. Like Vita really knows how to make Virginia feel like she loves her. 
Do you know what I mean? And so she's able to sort of twirl her around her finger in this beautiful way. And Virginia knows how to behave in a sort of detached way. Like she doesn't care that much, but she obviously definitely does because she gets extremely jealous by Vita and all of her other extracurricular affairs that she has with women and I think a man or two during mm. this period. And she rubbed it in Virginia's face a couple of times at various parties around she, I think she was indiscreet. Yeah, yeah. She, wa- she wasn't as... But, you know, that's kind of... That was the name of Vita's game. She's in an open relationship with her husband. Like, she's going to do what she wants, you know? Uh, but she wants to maintain this spiritual... Um, spiritually romantic relationship with Virginia at the same time. Right. So I want to read a letter that Vita wrote tonight in 1926. Oh, and by the way, this is juicy. In 1926, Vita also writes to her husband, Harold, and is like, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We're not in a muddle. And that was their word for relationship. Virginia, meaning Virginia and her, are not in a you know serious relationship. We've only been to bed twice. So we know that they had definitely fucked by that time. Oh. And Vita was kind of trying to play it cool with Harold because I think Harold was probably jealous that she was very, very infatuated with Virginia at this point. This is like 1926, 1927. This is sort of the height of their relationship. Right. But Harold probably had a dick in his mouth at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but Harold was too busy bottoming in Iran to care. <laughs> Hot. Okay. <clears throat> so should I read the letter to... Uh, yeah, read the letter title. Vida Sackville West to Virginia Woolf from Trieste. On the 21st of January, 1926. I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. I composed a beautiful letter to you in the sleepless nightmare hours of the night, and it is all gone. I just miss you. In quite a simple, desperate human way, you, with all your undumb letters, would never write so elementary a phrase as that. Perhaps you wouldn't even feel it. And yet I believe you'll be sensible of a little gap. But you clothe it in so exquisite a phrase that it would lose a little of its reality. Whereas with me, it is quite stark. I miss you even more than I could have believed. And I was prepared to miss you a good deal. It's incredible how essential to me you have become. That's amazing. I mean... When has anyone ever written you a letter like that? I mean, do you think that they were, like, going overboard with these letters? Like, or do they genuinely actually have this depth of feeling for each other? Let's remember, lesbians. So they definitely have this depth of feeling. And the other thing is, like I was just saying, is I think Vita knows how to spin this love for Virginia, right? It's They, they are yeah. both writers, right? And, and they are creating their relationship as much as they're actually experiencing it. From, from what I can tell when you read the letters, that, and Vita writes in this sort of, you know, bearing her, bearing her heart to Virginia. She's very, she's transparent in a way, but also dreamy and definitely sees the bigger psychological side of their relationship. Mm. When Virginia writes back, it's much more curt. And she has these flashes where she's very emotional and, and has these beautiful turns of phrase, but she never says, I, you know, I miss you so deeply. Like she doesn't talk in that kind of plain human register. Mm. So I don't know. It's interesting. They kind of play off of each other because Virginia not giving Vita that is also what makes Vita want Virginia more and more. But I just love that first line is so famous. Mm. I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. And she wrote that when she was on her way to meet Harold in Iran. 
so that he would stop bottoming for five seconds. <laughs> and she, so Vita is always going away as well. So I think that also figures into their letter writing, you know, like when mm. you, the, the distance makes the heart grow fonder kind of thing. They're, they're constantly saying goodbye to each other. Yeah. And she's I probably think, off her. She's probably smoking all sorts of opium and everything on some Oh, some she was having the time of her goddamn life, you know I'm I mean? sure. I'm not buying it. But anyway, no, of course I am. It's amazing. But Jesus Christ, what a beautiful letter. And like we said, Vita is at the same time stooping all these other girls. And one of them is Mary Campbell, who Virginia gets very upset about because she is a, a member of the Bloomsbury group. And I think Virginia feels kind of threatened by her intellect. She's like a real society woman uh, and and hosts parties and all of that. She's, again, something that Virginia can't be. Virginia is a more introverted she still goes out and she's still very witty and she's still great at dinner parties but she can't be the sort of hostess mm. you know i'm you know just to piggyback on that for a second all the while virginia is slowly and surely like getting further and further away from the nucleus of london because her nerves can't really handle it as she gets older right yeah they go she's not in richmond anymore now she's not in richmond anymore they've moved to what's uh, i think it's called monk's house it's in in sussex and vanessa her sister had a house in uh called charleston there as well and they're both sort i mean charleston is a real hangout for the bloomsbury group throughout this period Mm. so she does keep a house in London too, though. She she goes back, she goes and, forth. back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And she very didn't she very very famously say that she had to leave London because she would die of distraction. Yeah, but I think you know that was she was a social. We I think we have this image of Virginia Woolf as like in her basement in her dowdy little robes writing her little. No, that was, that was Emily Dickinson. Yeah, <laughs> a different kind <laughs> or of no, lesbian. Sylvia Plath. That was she's very basementy. Sylvia Plath. No, I feel like Sylvia Plath was cool. Oh, Wasn't was she, she kind of an it girl too? She was kind of, because she was like married to Ted Hughes or whatever that she guy's name She killed herself too though, didn't she? Yeah. A lot yeah. of killing themselves. Jesus. Everyone take a breather. So, no, but Virginia Woolf was like out and about in, in London. You know, like she yeah. went to parties. She was cool. She did lots of she shit. She just got really bad hangovers. She just couldn't cope with the hangovers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she did, I think she probably had migraines actually when you read the letters it's like I have a terrible headache I have a terrible headache and a headache that makes her like go to sleep for a hundred years it's oh, like yeah. it's a migraine but so the, the thing I wanted to say though is that Virginia is very uh, impressed by this side of Vita that is the society hostess and so I'm just going to read this little passage from her where she's writing in her own diary about Vita Sackville-West okay so it goes These sapphists love women. Friendship is never untinged with amorosity. I like Vita and being with her and the splendor. She shines in the grocer's shop in Seven Oaks. Wow, you say that seven times fast. She shines in the grocer's shop. She's shining. We'll do that later. She shines in the grocer's shop in Seven Oaks with a candlelit radiance, stalking on legs like beech trees, pink glowing, grape clustered, pearl hung. What is the effect of all this on me? Very mixed. There is her maturity and full-breastedness, her being so much in full sail on the high tides, where I am coasting down backwaters. Her capacity, I mean, to take the floor in any company, to represent her country, to visit Chatsworth, to control silver, servants, chow dogs. Her motherhood, but she is a little cold and offhand with her boys. Her being, in short, what I have never been, a real woman. In brain and insight, she is not as highly organized as I am. But then she is aware of this, and so lavishes on me the maternal protection, which, for some reason, is what I have always most wished from everyone. 
what Leonard gives me and Nessa and Vita in her more clumsy external way tries to give me. So you can see, she's like, she doesn't look down on her. She has this, she has this vision of her as a, a type of woman that she can never be. Mm. And it, it draws her to her for years and years and years. And this is right about the time that she starts writing Orlando, which you brought up earlier, mm -hmm. which to Virginia is kind of a parody of the genre of biography, but more importantly, is a beautiful expression of her admiration for Vita and this aristocratic background that she comes from. So Orlando is definitely my favorite book by Virginia Woolf that charts a, an aristocrat named Orlando from the 1500s up to 1928. And the last day in the book is the day before it was published right, in 1928. Yeah. So it's just like so clever. And in the middle of it, Orlando goes through a sex change. And this is Virginia's way of bringing to light, of putting into, of novelizing Vita's bisexuality because she sort of associates sexuality with gender in that, yeah. you know, more. It just seems so incredibly, like, ahead of its time, and but yet eternal in its theme of, like, transition and trans and transformation. Yeah. And an ancestry and being a part of a longer line of, 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 of gays and lesbians and trans and LGBT. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of the first transgender novels, like, in terms of someone actually transitioning overtly. But it, I don't think it's uh, it's not that interested in sexuality. It's much more interested in like the aristocratic side. Mm. And in in Orlando, Orlando is a poet and trying to become a poet, like Vita was a poet and and a novelist. So it's it's I think it's just this uh, Nigel Nicholson, Vita's son, called it the longest and most charming love letter in English literature. And that's really what it feels like. It, it's just like this gorgeous meditation on Vita and what her life could have been if she existed from the 1500s up to now. So I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a weird fucking book, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like halfway in, the protagonist goes to sleep and wakes up a woman. You know, it's like, could happen to anyone, I guess. And all the locations, like Constantinople and all these. Yeah, it's like, fabulous. fabulous. It's fucking like, fabulous. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're watching the movie after we're this. The movie. Um, so... At, at this point, they also go away together for, I think, their only trip, their only real trip where it's just them. They go to Burgundy, and, and Virginia writes about it in her letters, and she's very worried that they might figure each other out and that it would ruin the relationship. Mm. But instead, they just have a beautiful time together. Um, there's this really cute scene where there's a thunderstorm, and Vita comes into Virginia's bedroom at, like, 2 in the morning, and they just talk about death and love and for, like, three hours. It's like, sounds fucking cheery. Mm. Um, but... But it is hot. There's something hot about mm. it. Anyway, Orlando happens. That is, it's actually quite a successful book. It's one of Virginia's more successful books because all of her books are so fucking experimental that no one wants to read them. And after that, they become, they sort of start to slip into less and less of a tight, tight, tight relationship, especially because Virginia starts hanging out with this other lesbian named Ethel Smythe, who is a composer and also 75 years old. So it's like, I think that's where we get the dowdy image of Virginia right. from, you know, because she just like wants to hang out with old ladies and be an old lady all the time. But Vita wants to move to the countryside, live in her new castle and have her garden, you know, be a fabulous bisexual and just get fat in the country. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. Absolutely. Virginia keeps writing. Vita has some novels that come out that are super successful. So she's like raking it in. And then eventually fascism happens in the 1930s, more tragedies, more people going to war. And that really brings them together again. And they have a sort of beautiful, you know, when you read the letters that we have a bunch of them from 1940 and, 19, and 1939 when the war is just starting. 
and they they write to each other about the bombs dropping and thinking about each other sitting alone in their houses. You know, it's all very tender and touching. Mm. I often think how terrifying it must have been, especially if you um, you know if you identified. I mean, for everybody, but I mean, identifying as a queer person and the and and the marked you know the the rise of of the Third Reich and Nazism and and how they just kind of like steamrolled across Europe and like all of these stories that must have been coming out of like you know because Berlin before the Second World War was like a, a queer mecca yeah and um, these people must have, must have been terrifying yeah and it's 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 also just like the basic economics of war you know like when you when you're reading their letters uh, Vita sends Virginia two pounds of butter and it's like she's been eating her out for six years. Like, it's like the biggest gift that she could possibly give her. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's just, you can feel the 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 risk of the Germans about to invade right, England yeah, because yeah. they tore into Paris and then they're literally about to fly over. Yeah. Well, they do fly over with all the bombs. But so anyway, back to tragedy, everyone, <laughs> because Virginia Woolf then can't take it anymore in 1941 and walks into the River Ouse half a mile from her house and drowns herself by putting stones in her pockets. And the, the letter that Vita writes to her husband when she hears about it is so sad. It's just completely heartbroken, completely split in two. But later on, there is, there is one silver lining, I think, which is that after Vita dies in 1962, I think. She lived to a ripe old age. Yeah, not bad, like 70 or something yeah. like that. When she dies, she leaves this big Gladstone leather bag full of letters to her female lovers. And she's written a note in it, which I'm going to read because it's so interesting. And it was, it was, um, it was found by her son, Nigel, who then used it to write a lot about the bisexuality of her mother, of her, of his father, of his mother, his father and Virginia. So she leaves this note that says, the psychology of people like myself will be a matter of interest, and I believe it will be recognized that many more people of my type do exist than under the present day system of hypocrisy is commonly admitted. I am not saying that such personalities and the connections which result from them will not be deplored as they are now, but I do believe that their greater prevalence and the spirit of candor which one hopes will spread with the progress of the world will lead to their recognition. So, Amen to so, that. Isn't that so interesting? She's like leaving behind all of these yeah. letters and being like, people are probably always going to be a little bit grossed out by gays, but I think it's going to get better. Yeah. You know? And that's God, I just pretty love, much what happened. I just love Vita Sackville West. I know. I fucking love her. Oh, my God. I love I mean, both. I love, of course. I mean, I love Virginia, uh, Virginia Woolf. She's gotten her due. I mean, I just feel... I'm wondering if even... Uh, but, Vita's like, Virginia, you want to have tea with and, like, talk shit about people? Yeah. I feel like you want to, like, do coke and go to Absolutely. Moscow with Vita Sackville yeah, she, West. She was, in the, she was in the back of, like, you know, like, just big old Rolls Royces, just doing bumps with like, such a box, strings of pearls, and, like, <laughs> sluts everywhere. Sluts everywhere. <laughs> she was like, she literally was the notorious B.I.G. <laughs> and I think also what like reading those the letter, I, re I read the whole book um, to prepare for this, like back to front of their letters. It's a great collection. For I know I'm <laughs> so noble. There's this great collection um, that Penguin came out with. And just as a as a gay man, like I feel like it's really hard for gay men to fall in love. Like we just don't love. It's hard for you to fall we, in love because <laughs> you've got I'm, black heart. I'm absolutely sobbing. <laughs> Keep on reading your Vita Sackville West letters, you lonely bitch. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Um, just kidding. I love you. No, it's I, it's easy for gay men to fuck. We we fuck. Yeah. 
Lesbians don't fuck as much, but they do love a lot oh, and God, easily yeah. and really yeah. well. And I feel and like when reading- they partner that, you know, like especially in the modern era with all the rights and, you know, you know, afforded by the laws and all the rest of it, they seem to partner for like life, you know, like they partner for a very, very long time. They don't the really- U-Haul effect. Yeah. 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 Move in on the first date. No, but they, I, I feel it's just a beautiful example of like what love is, you know, yeah. and, and the, the, the fact that it's these two brilliant writresses, that's such a terrible word, writers, they are writers expressing themselves to each other so consistently over years and years and years. Mm. And, and they always have this, this love between them, even when they're not in the throes of their relationship anymore. I don't know. I think it's a beautiful example. Absolutely. And you know, what really strikes me about it as well, it was one of the last throws um, like before World War Two, like I mean, you know, the, the World War One was the death knell of the aristocracy, but I think World War Two really was the death knell of that entire world. Oh, yeah. And there's not a lot of people around these days that have that kind of like, um, you know, it's sad to say they had so much privilege. These women had, you know, let's face it, right? Oh, absolutely, um, especially they, Vita, for, and they didn't have middle class morality that I think is rammed down the throat of a lot of a lot of modern society. So even though we have like the gay rights movement, LGBT community, and we've all fought, fought so hard for where we are today, there's a certain kind of like nonconformity that's lost with, um, you know, especially when you look at right. Vita and Virginia's relationship because they never really tried to label it. They just let it ebb and flow and live and drift and come back. I mean, how unique uh, and to that time and how special that and to have an insight into that from us looking back from where we are now I think is very important and rare I agree so know, that's what I think I've learned from from this entire thing I agree and that and that's the reason I think historical homos before gay liberation are so interesting because they reveal that side of gayness before it was so tightly categorized yeah and before everyone was like gender is this and gender is not this and sexuality is this and it's like they just didn't care about gender or sexuality they just did whatever the fuck they wanted i think we could learn a little bit something from that why don't we leave it at that what a beautiful way to leave it thank you bash and thank you hey thank you Virginia Wolf and thank you Vita Sackville West for just being fucking bad bitches. Yeah. That's a wrap on today's episode of Historical Homos. Like, subscribe, leave a five-star fucking review, baby, because we're going to give you so much more content. We're coming straight into your ears. Follow us at historical.homos on Instagram. Booyakasha. Keep being gay. Love you. <laughs>